0: Good afternoon. Here on Latinx and in the Inland Empire, we are going to be speaking to Stephanie Griswold, a Interfield PhD student in History and Religious Studies. Stephanie is also the Research Assistant of the Howard W. Hunter Mormon Chair of Studies, as well as the President of the Mormon Studies Student Association here at CGU. Good afternoon, Stephanie.
1: Hi, Eric, how are you?
0: I'm good. We met last semester and one of the connections we had, Stephanie, was that we're both doctoral students, but we come from really different backgrounds. Um, I was really impressed, Stephanie, with all of your scholarship and knowledge of history and religious studies. And you really opened my eyes up um, to conversations that we just haven't been able to have yet on our podcast. And that is around um, the intersection of religious studies and Latinx and Chicanx people. Um,
1: Yeah, it's um, uh, specifically when I, because I do Mormon studies and having never been a part of the LDS church, um, I'm not a member of any uh, derivation of, of Joseph Smith's restoration. So um, I'm usually one of very few people of color um, at the conferences. And I'm certainly one of the only uh, Gentiles, though there are, there are several of us, just not as many as active Latter-day Saints at, um, at those kinds of conferences. Obviously, when I go to like um, kind of broader scope, religious or historical conferences, it's, it's different, but, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting place I found myself in.
0: Most definitely, especially I believe during a, um, like COVID era, um, where I've seen more people become, let's say Stephanie spiritual, um, doing more reflection I've noticed in my community, a lot of friends are seeking out um, a relationship with a higher power, a relationship with some faith. And when I talked to you in class, I felt that there was a lot that we could unpack and talk about, um, because I believe, as you you were telling us in class, Stephanie, the Latinx community is really diverse in California, um, and especially... The way they engage um, faith and all the different faiths um, in the United States.
1: Absolutely, like um, it's it's really interesting because a lot of the time um, people will look at Latinx communities and maybe assume that they're all Catholic um, or assume uh, that maybe there's going to be a lot of evangelicals because those are kind of two of the main. Uh, religious movements that, that are associated, um, with our, with our ethnic community. However, there's a ton of derivation in Latinx and Chicanex Catholicism. Um, a lot of, di- of diversity in the types of Christianity that our people engage with. Um, and then there's non Christian, uh, Latinx people. Um, Whether it's people trying to get closer to their ancestral roots through Santeria or Santa Muerte or um, or trying to find their way to indigenous um, indigenous practices uh, from whatever native country or um, or heritage country that they associate themselves to. And um, and then, of course, again, with Mormon studies, people don't really think about. Mormons as, um, as Latinx. Um, but it's one of the fastest growing religions in Latin America.
0: Most certainly. And Stephanie and I, um, spoke previously because when I grew up in Mexico city, there was such a large Mormon community and, um, it made a really positive impact on me as a young, um, as a young as a young student, because I was able to see the world, Stephanie, in a different way. It was almost a privilege for me um, in Mexico City to to have the opportunity to talk about different religions in a safe place. Um, and like I learned, there's many many Mormon Mexicans and. When I came to the United States, I I felt like exactly like you said, people didn't want to let the Latinx people identify with different religions or they were making um, kind of stereotypes, right? Or they weren't letting Latinx people self-actualize their faith in a modern contemporary time, Um
1: I think that's uh, partially true, but I don't think that it's um, necessarily, you know, a 20th century thing or even a late 20th century thing. I think it's been kind of consistent. Um, and, you know, not to get too theoretical, but that we have this, this waspy notion of religion in this country, right? Like, um, you know, the top is, is kind of um, that rugged frontierism, um, that rugged individualism, that Protestant ethic um, that that is kind of in the ethos of being an American. Um, and so historically, um, Catholics in general, um, Mormons, groups that had a religious hierarchy um, have been looked down on. And so I think that there's kind of this this tension for Latinx people to, um, to engage in um, certainly not um, completely abandoning their latino or their Latinxness ness um, for, to become, you know, Americanized, but adapt, de- adopting some some of the aspects right and so like you see that in a lot of like evangelical communities where it's still very strongly culturally latinx um but it changes how um how they engage with other latinx people of other faiths how they engage with um with politics with um with like cultural things how you start seeing second third fourth fifth generation um latinx children not speaking spanish for example or um or not being particularly uh, emotionally invested in the their parents grandparents nation of origin right um and and i think it follows a lot of the uh the trends that we can see in 19th century European immigration to the United States. Um, So there's the religion, I think, plays a big part in, in kind of how, how that happens.
0: Most definitely, Stephanie, thank you for clarifying that, because you're right, it isn't something that just appeared in the 21st century. (laughs) But I do think that tension is really fascinating to talk about, um, Stephanie, do you think that that tension for Latinx people in specific um, has gotten less tense? Or do you think that that is part of the politics of being a Latinx um, person in this country that, um, that that's part of self-actualizing, that that tension?
1: Um, I I don't think it's less. Um, I think that there, I mean, the 2020 election kind of shows us that. Um, I think a lot of us, uh, I, I, so I'm first-generation American on my dad's side, second-generation American on my mom's side. Um, my dad is from Nicaragua. My, my mom's family is from Mexico. And um, I have immigrant family members who consistently vote against their own self-interest in favor of um of voting for things that are more in line with them religiously even though it doesn't affect them directly right so like you you do see that kind of tension with like okay i have my citizenship and whether i understand certain policies or not is is not really the issue it's where does my religion tell me to vote? And I think that that's um, part of the Americanization process, because I think you see that also with, you know, with most Americans, um, not most, that's the incorrect way to say that, but with like a lot of this, you know, say loud minority of voters, you kind of have that, that trend. Right. Um, and, and it, it doesn't, Just stop with, um, with people that have been Americans for generations, right? It's happening in our immigrant communities as well. Um, That you know someone can disparage your entire, um, you know, quote unquote race, and you still vote for them because they're anti-abortion or they're pro-choice or you know whatever. Um, So, yeah, I think I think it's just part of the dynamic of um, for most immigrant communities, um, to kind of have that tension of like, do I like follow like ethnic reasoning, religious reasoning? Can I split the difference And, and being able to navigate that? Um, not just politically, but culturally.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating, Stephanie. Um, that balance between like you, like a religious cultural background and becoming an, a US citizen, right? Or migrating, right? That in that you use the word process. I think that's really important. Um, and thank you for sharing where you, your background because I do think that is part of a process, right? Of becoming an American, um, keeping your cultural heritage, um, Keeping your faith, and then, like you said, having to be having to vote on these issues, right? That sometimes go against a cultural idea um, of of someone because they have that loyalty, and I think that's a really fascinating thing to talk about, don't you, Stephanie? That um, that even if you cross a border, right, or you become a citizen that some things you carry with you, but some things you, you let go. Right. Stephanie.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I always feel inclined to kind of share my background depending on, um, on, on the situation and the conversation, because it, it a hundred percent informs how I perceive things, how I analyze things, um, how I make decisions. Um, and I think that I do, in some respects, reflect um, kind of what my parents try to teach me, which I think a lot of people would say that, right? Like, oh, well, you know, I, I've developed this because of how I was raised. Um, but at the same time, I, um, to the point of having no tact, I I kind of... Um, overanalyze things and have a very direct sense of like, this is what I feel is right. This is what I feel is wrong. And and so that kind of uh, bites me sometimes. But um, but I think it's really important to kind of be upfront with your positioning. Like I, I can tell you like, oh, I'm Catholic, but I'm not a good Catholic. Like I'm a terrible Catholic. I don't go to church every Sunday. <laughs> uh, uh, we're, we're in the Lenten season right now. And I have broken my Lenten sacrifice. Accidentally, like without unintentionally, I should say, um, multiple times, and it's only been like three days. Uh, but um, I, I think it's um, it still informs what I do, um, and maybe not in a Catholicism that is identifiable to uh, maybe like uh, people from the United States, but it that's that's kind of something that that comes out in the research too is like there is a huge difference regionally in the United States regionally in the continent um, of how people um, express their Catholicism um, that's also the case in, in a lot of religions um, especially ones that have like a, a, a centralized governing body um, where there are things that are uniform but um like for example, liberation theology, the way that it is um, expressed and practiced in Latin America is totally different than it is in the United States. Um, you you see a lot of the um, the more liberal work being done, activism being done in Latin America is supported by the by the ca- Catholic Church. Down there, but in the United States, the Catholic Church is a very conservative um, arm of of religious involvement in politics. Like it's 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 a tricky thing to navigate, and when you look at it just from an Amer like a U.S. perspective, um, you you don't always get the nuance of what migration brings to the United States and people's understanding of their own religion um, and how it's practiced in their native country versus the United States. And then how that trickles down generationally.
0: That was really well said. And Stephanie, that's exactly why we wanted you on our (laughs) podcast as a guest, Um, being a woman of color, if I may, um, in religious studies, I think is a really important positionality. Um,
1: And thank you Um, most. I I live in a really uh, liminal space. Sometimes Um, I'm I'm kind of white passing, but like then white folks tell me like, "Oh no, I can tell that you're not like straight up Caucasian." (laughs) But then you know, I go visit my family in Nicaragua, and they're like, "Oh." She probably doesn't understand Spanish. Like, let's talk about how she's all white and stuff. Um, and obviously, um, my last name Griswold—not super uh, Latinx—but I married a white man, um, so here we are. But, um, I, I, but I, you know, that also just speaks to other. Um, other issues that we have in our, in our community, right? Like we have this problem of like colorism, Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're too white, you're too black, um, you're Brown. So you should want to be white or, you know, whatever like dynamic people think like concepts of beauty and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, until we stop doing that to each other, um, we're not really going to be able to solve some of the other issues that we experience, especially living in the United States and especially after the la- like the cultural shift um, and the political shift of the last, you know, four or five years. So, yeah. So thanks for that. I am. I do consider myself a woman of color. And um, yeah, I appreciate that because I think there's a lot of um, miscommunication within our own community as to. Who gets to decide that, and and what we need to be in order to consider ourselves that, and not be, you know, um, shamed for appropriation or you know that kind of thing? So,
0: yeah, we in one of my classes, and I'm sh- I'm sure you've read it. It's called Women of Color and Feminism. Uh, I
1: actually have not read that.
0: Yeah, but but doc- I will
1: definitely take it down.
0: Yeah, by Dr. Meiti Rojas. She is a Chicanx professor, and she really resonates, Stephanie, with a lot of things that you've spoken on um, around sexual politics of different people from different countries um, as they move to America, um, kind of patriarchy, um, and also being misread or misconstrued as a um, woman of color religious studies scholar um because I feel like you have lived knowledge Stephanie that yeah I would I would say so this discussion Um, you know like hello (laughs) yeah
1: well I think you know I I always use this um I love pop culture references so I always use this pop culture reference when I try and explain like I guess my my lived experience of like never being quite enough for whatever community i'm in um and it's that line from the selena movie where um where the dad's like you gotta be more mexican than the mexicans more american than the americans and you gotta do it at the same time and it's exhausting and i totally butchered that line and i know it better than that but essentially that's that's the gist and uh and i think it's true for for a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. whether they're white passing or Afro Latinx mm-hmm. or or, you know, the stere-, quote unquote stereotypical looking Latino like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, we were never quite enough for each other or for other people. And I think that that's that has really informed um, kind of my attitude towards mm-hmm. uh, towards putting myself out there and being like, yeah, you might not right off the bat, think of me as a Latina. Um, But I'm going to show you Mm -hmm. what I can do and then inform you like, and by the way, you know, walk over here, right? Woman of color, proud Latina, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. all that. But it it can be a tricky navigation. And um, I mean, same thing religiously, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yes, I'm not the, the most active Catholic, um, but people assume all the time that I'm Mormon, um, that I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, to, to use their terminology, or Mormon of some other stripe. And uh, I'm like, no, actually, I, I am not. Um, and I do this because I, I don't study LDS people. I study fundamentalist Mormonism. And, uh, and I, I have a, a path in mind but I study that group because they are understudied and underrepresented within Mormon studies. Um, and usually the, the kind of attention that they get is from their worst moments. And I can't um, stand by and let that define an entire community um, when they have like a long, rich history that of course has problems, um, but it, 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 their worst moments can't define them. Um, and I find that oftentimes when I tell people like, oh, I studied the FLDS, they're like, oh, my God, they're, you know, they had all this trauma or, oh, they're all terrible people because they all abuse children or, you know, these stereotypes about them. And I'm like, this is the same stuff that happens to my own community um, as Latinos, like we get um, pigeonholed to certain stereotypes. Um, and I, I don't like it for for myself. Why would I like it for anybody else?
0: Exactly. Making those wide-ranging, sweeping generalizations. Um, I think that is one of the reasons I connected with you, because I also feel, and I know a lot of graduate students, Stephanie, um, feel like you said inside communities that we're studying and interested in supporting and researching, but also outsiders. Um, But the like you said, we are still we still want to be acknowledged as Latinx scholars. Um, and that, that, that can be very difficult for a lot of people to understand, right, Stephanie, that, that that's actually an important part of our philosophy, right, the way we approach our scholarship. Um, like you said, we do bring our lived experience and understanding um, of living in different cultures, across borders, and and that that's important um, to students and that it should be part of, in my opinion, um, being a graduate student, Um, continuing to be a little bit uncomfortable, but working together with other scholars in different fields. For example, I think it'd be really cool, Stephanie, if one day me and you could do a publication or or do a study together. Because I feel like you have such different strengths um, that would really help me better understand who I was studying in relation I mean, to their relationship with, in, in relationship to their faith or their religion, which is a big part of cultural studies.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, um, you know, you mentioned that we were in class together last semester, um so when we were in that cult it was like a theory class for cultural studies, right? And that, so what I did, um, being a historian, one of the first things that we do when we're trying to enter into something kind of new, and I had never really I guess officially done um anything in like Latinx studies or Chicano studies. Um so what we do as historians is we look at what other scholars have already said about the th- the general theme that we want to get into. Right. And so my interest is new religious movements in Latin America. Um, I think it's really interesting. I love new religious movements in the United States. Um, anything from Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventists, to Adventists um, Christian scientists, uh, the Salvation Army, which most people don't realize is its own church. Um, so these 19th century groups but we also have you know in the 50s and 60s we see people's temple coming out of the united states we see um the Hare krishna movement in the 60s and it's like all of these groups have presence have a presence in latin america and most people don't think about it like who thinks about Hare krishna's in mexico like very few people Mm -hmm. um would think that that's like a thing but Follow them on Facebook and they have constant live streams of of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's 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 wild um, that some of these things are ignored. It's difficult to um, to study Hare Krishna's um, because they are a little bit um, insular. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can buy the scriptures and and, and there's places to start, you know, at being an outsider and trying and trying to do. Uh, fair and ethical work on on these these groups. Um, most a lot of these groups have scandals and things and and that's not really my particular interest. Um, yeah. but um, I, they, one thing
0: I really think is important and probably mm-hmm. obvious to you, but that these movements do cross borders, right?
1: absolutely. and and, and of sometimes
0: people, people have this idea, right? that there's a wall of faith that some, t- right. That, that you just have to let everything go or, or that, like you said, these movements are different, but actually they're articulated in similar ways, right. Across just different languages. Is that correct? Right.
1: Yeah. So, so like, for example, you're talking about your own lived experience of meeting Mexican Mormons, right. Me- Mexican members of the LDS mm. church. Yes. Um, They've been there since the, 1880s like LDS missionaries like officially entered Mexico in the 1880s they were they were kicked out during the revolution with the anti-clerical uh, um, government pushing out anyone that was not like any non-native Mexican clergy from any religion so um, in and that led to a series of what they call conventions from Mexican Native Mexican Latter Day Saints, um, which culminated in the third convention. uh 1,200 or so uh, Mexican Latter Day Saints uh, withdrew from the church and said, "Hey, you know what? You're not giving us um, any authority in the bishoprics here. You're sending people from Salt Lake to run our churches, and like, why can't we do it?" Eventually everything kind of um, resolved um, and and things got better, but there was a group from that third convention that completely broke off and and became fundamentalists. And very few people have really done the research on this. Um, Tom Murphy and Elisa Polito are really the the ones that come to mind. Um, There's uh, And Tullis, I forget his first name, but um, those are like the three that come to mind that really do anything on mormonism in mexico in general um and elisa Polito, she's a cgu alumna um she just came out with a book on on these fundamentalist uh mormons in mexico um because when people think about fundamentalist mormons in mexico they think about um white immigrants into mexico that were escaping prosecution for practicing polygamy um and that that happened um, in the 1860s or 70s. Um, and, you know, you have Colonia du uh, this several colonies. Um, that's where Mitt Romney's family uh, is, is from. Um, they migrated there before um, the LDS church got rid of uh, got rid of polygamy in 1890. Um, and so it was a bunch of uh, Anglo-Americans moving to the borderlands on the Mexican side so they could practice their religion the way that they believed that they needed to, uh, instead of going to prison and having their family separated. Well, more groups like that um, developed, became, uh, started the fundamentalist Mormon movement. And a lot, some of them moved into these colonies and into these borderland areas. Um, And some of them intermarried with locals and things, uh, but no one really thinks about the, the, what I call like the Brown fundamentalists um, because there aren't a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Elisa Polito's book is kind of the, one of the only like book length treatments of this fundamentalist movement among, um, among indigenous and mestizo so Mexicans. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in, right? Like I'm interested in how these, very white very American religious movements cross into Latin America mm-hmm. and and work to convert indigenous and mestizo Lat- Latinx people to their to their faith and how that historical pro- like how that wor- process has worked historically that's more or less kind of my gig
0: You're, yeah. <laughs> is quite a gig. I, it's I really, my bag. <laughs> yeah, I really like how you've really helped us visualize, um, kind of like a current between, right? Let's say Mexico and the U.S. that that is kind of an open freeway where people um, are are doing new religious movements or practicing them on both sides of the border and they're in communication with each other. Is that correct, Stephanie?
1: A lot of the times, yes. Um, th- sometimes. So the group that Elisa Polito wrote about um, was led by a man named Margarito Batista, and he believed that he was the Lamanite prophet. Lamanite is a, a book of Mormon term for descendants of the um of the Israelite layman and um basically they are the indigenous the indigenous people of our continents. Um
0: so the brown people like us.
1: A, yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um and so there's a lot of contention historically about the place of the laymanite in um in Mormon theology and um if they're good, if they're bad, if they You know, if they need to be redeemed in order to be good again, uh, because um, in the Book of Mormon, they are descendants of the House of Israel. Um, So they were good. uh, But conflict between a set of brothers kind of turned into this big war and the annihilation of the Nephites, which Nephi was the brother of Laman. Um, And so it gets it gets really tricky and. The interesting thing about Margarito Batista is that after the third convention, he wasn't satisfied with the compromises that the third convention made with, um, with the LDS Church in Salt Lake, and so when he uh, embraced fundamentalism, which, to be clear, Mormon fundamentalism is very different than the types of fundamentalism that we think about with, you know, evangelical Christians or, um, or even like in Islam or Orthodox. Yes.
0: Judaism. And that's really important to 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 know. Thank you.
1: Yeah, cool. yeah. So the the language sounds the same, but um, it it really talks about different things. Um, but anyway, so um, he believed that according to so in the Book of Mormon, it talks about um the Lamanites being redeemed, um, and that being the point of like the start of the destructions or the the latter days or depending on what group you're talking to though, they have kind of slightly different lingo for it. Um, And that the, the keys of authority will be passed down to a Lamanite prophet and so on and so forth. Right. Um, So he was like, I think that's me. I think we're redeemed. Um, And in old school Mormon parlance, um, the Lamanites are supposed to become white and delightsome when they're redeemed. Um, so it doesn't sound well, I, great. And that's not what the LDS church teaches now, uh, but some fundamentalist groups do um, that they need to become white and delightsome in order for them to serve the purpose of prophecy from the Book of Mormon. And so it, it gets really tricky. And Margarito Bautista in the, ni- in the 1930s is like, Hey man, I don't need to be white. I'm already redeemed. I have accepted the restored gospel. And I think I think we're good like and we're going back to like the fundamentals um with not just polygamy but um living the law of consecration which is communal living um as as it's framed in the book of mormon and their other scripture doctrine and covenants um they believe in a thing called the adam god doctrine which talks about um god having been a real person aka adam um and then everything coming from like an actual physical deity that became um you know kind of the more ethereal um one that we think of when we think about god and and he was like yeah i think i think we're ready and but he did interact with white fundamentalists from utah um quite a bit actually uh in the 1950s and and then they just kind of didn't um Batista died. Um, the fundamentalists from the United States that he um, interacted with—they also died—and so a lot of the connection, um, the transnational connection, was lost at that point. Um, so, uh, so they they kind of navigated on their own uh, for a really long time, uh, with limited interaction and exchange with um, with the white, their white fundamentalist counterparts.
0: Yeah. I really like that. You brought up this idea of, uh, whiteness because, uh, that is really relevant to Latinx people, obviously. Right. But this idea that, that you could become more white if you were of a certain religion or faith, right, Stephanie, that, um, People have these ideas, right? These notions, um, but that 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 happens on both sides of the border, right? Like we talked Absolutely. about, you're never brown, yeah, it, you're never white up. Um, and I really like that you said that Bautista was like, "I'm good." Um, but what? But what a gap, Stephanie. That's fascinating. What a fascinating story.
1: Um, yeah, as you can tell, there's a there's a lot to read into it a lot to to Mm -hmm. try and parse out um and and it kind of goes back to what i was saying not just what you reiterated now but like the colorism issue that we have in our community is very it it has that kind of toxic element right of like oh like oh mira salio herita you know she came out she came out light-skinned or oh look she's got um, you know light eyes or whatever um, and like how suddenly that's like a mark of beauty in our community where if you come out with dark skin brown eyes and black hair it's like oh you're just you're you're regular you know mm-hmm. it's you're it's whatever but like yeah you're cute but it's whatever whereas yeah. like all of a sudden it's like exotic that you look white and I'm like no. it's just very confusing um <laughs>
0: It is. And and you can imagine what that that must be fascinating, Stephanie, to study people on that are indigenous or identify as Latinx or chicanx who do want to also identify as Mormons, right? Who yeah, do, and that's, who do that's believe what, in that and that, that that's part of their identity. Right. Well, and
1: that's well, that's kind of the tricky part, right? Like um in the late nineteen seventies. Um, the mainstream LDS church really took a a hard look at themselves about some of their racial policies. And um, in 1978 is when they lifted their priesthood ban, um, which is the generic term for not allowing African-American or black people that were in the church to enter the temple to do their, to do their, um, their like baptisms and stuff. It had to be done by proxy up until that point. Um, And so like, during that long, hard look, that's when you start seeing a change in, in the mainstream conversation about the Lamanites, in the mainstream conversation about, um, about Black bodies, including Afro-Latinos. Um, and the church has been, since then, has been, even before then, but has been growing like enormously in Latin America and in Africa, as well as among Latinos and, um, and Black folks in the United States. So, um, the mainstream church has really um, tried to um, kind of fix themselves as far as, I, as' as far as I know. like by no means are they perfect, nor is any other religion um, in my opinion, but um, but it's very different. Now when you start looking at the different groups of fundamentalist Mormons and how they look at um, racial issues, it's still, Highly problematic in a lot of cases. Um, Whether it's something as. I don't want to say small. Because it's not small. But like on the spectrum of. Of their race ideology. Like oh we need to intermarry with the Lamanites. So that we can. um, Kind of move along. The process of their redemption. Um, To oh my god. We are absolutely. Against black people. Like they're. We can't talk to them. We can't around them they're you know whatever um which is is the case in a small percentage of these groups um but it's still there right um and what i've learned through my research is that when a lot of people leave these religions especially the flds they struggle to navigate race relations um and 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 they they come out of the church and they realize like Whoa! I am now interacting with all the people that my church told me were the devil, apostates, gentiles, and black people, and all of these people seem pretty nice, and they're treating me really well, and you know whatever else. Um, So they have to have to deal with that change, right? Um, So it's kind of an interesting thing to see. uh, With even though I'm a historian, I do a lot of collaboration with ex-members of this community um and and members of the community uh, of the fundamentalist mormon community at large i should say um and and it's really interesting to see people navigate uh, navigate that when they are being exposed to something that's a little bit contrary to to what their um what their church or their leaders have told them
0: Definitely. I think those—that that is exactly what is happening in this country, right, Stephanie?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie yeah.
0: There's a lot of tension. People are wanting to self-actualize. They want to be themselves. And Stephanie, that's why we wanted, another reason we wanted to have you as a guest is we really enjoy um, listening to you and we wanted to give you that space um, to talk about those intersections of uh, religion, history, and um, Latinx studies, I I'm always really fascinated um, by all the Latinx people I meet in the Inland, in the Inland Empire, Stephanie, that are um, Mormon, Jewish, of many many faiths. But that I then I always wonder, Stephanie, why aren't we talking about this? Man,
1: don't even get me started on <laughs> like, uh, on Jewish diaspora into Latin America and uh the Ladino tradition and man I could go on all day. Like this is like I said, this is my gig. Like I this is something that I've really dedicated like a big portion of my life to. Um I just turned thirty three, like I don't know, two weeks ago. <laughs> and it's um And I just there's so many I it, this happens because I have too many questions, like I always have too many questions. Right. Um, And I'm like, well, you know what? No one can answer them for me. I'm not finding anything on JSTOR to be, you know, the nerd that I am. I'm looking on JSTOR to answer my questions. And I'm like, I might as well do something about it um, instead of just sit around and be unsatisfied. Um, And then. You know, I I know another connection I feel that we have is our military backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, You being the child of a veteran and, you know, I was a military wife uh, and now I have nephews and cousins and my brother all in the service. Mm -hmm. And it's um, looking at Latinx issues in our in our military community and looking at Latinx issues or religious issues, I should say, in our in our military community. Like that's a whole other layer um, that I kind of do on the side, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's all of it is tricky, but you can find all of these issues in every nook and cranny. Okay. Um, of, of I mean, at least of my life experience, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: even, even in situations where there's like a lack of religion, it's like, well, why is that? Right. So, yeah. I'm just I'm just over here thinking about questions all the time, and uh, that's how I ended up at CGU pursuing uh, degrees in two different departments. Because why not?
0: Exactly. Well, Stephanie, we think you are asking the appropriate questions. Excellent. What excites us about the work you're doing is that you are uh, pushing a little further. You're digging a little deeper. And you're helping students like myself sculpt my experience at Claremont, experience, at Claremont um, by working with different um, scholars. And I think that that's what we should be doing more of, trying to connect across disciplines somehow um, so that we can, like you said, bring our shared experiences, but enlarge those experiences.
1: Well, um, so I think the other, right the other piece Puzzle, I think is also where we see gaps um where like if our interests again those questions that go unanswered those academic inquiries that are that that don't really have anything out there for them just yet um just going out and looking for it for the for the sources um and not being shy I there was a time in my academic journey that I didn't have a lot of um I guess you could say institutional support for what I wanted to do. Um, So, and I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to kind of fund myself in, in, you know, in a minor aspect of all this um, and just like kind of show up places. Um, I, well, actually I got a grant to do some, um, some research at an archive in Utah and on my way back to Southern California, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take a detour. For a couple of
0: hours, wow!
1: And just show up in the community where I was that I was studying, and I ended up making friends. Um, then I started taking my husband out there on research trips, and he fell in love with the area. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, a few years later, we bought a house. <laughs> um, like, um, and so it's it's one of those things where, like, yeah, you you end up kind of building a little bit of community once you're when you're upfront with the people that you're studying you say, Hey, this is what I want to do. Um, these are my kind of ethical, uh, guidelines. And, um, like, what do you think, um, that collaborative spirit that should be alive in the humanities, um, is, is really, um, my biggest takeaway is like just show up places and be honest and be ethical. And, um, most of the time people are gonna appreciate what you're trying to do um, and correct you if you're if you're maybe going the wrong way about it or 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 not understanding the nuance or whatever. It's better to have that connection um than, than not in my in my experience.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much because you said two things that I think are really important, and that is showing up. Showing up as a scholar, showing up as a person of color, in this case, as a Latinx person. And more importantly, Stephanie, advocating for ourselves as scholars. What you said is exactly what I believe more students need to be doing, which is showing up. What that means, Stephanie, is sometimes you don't need to ask permission. You have to go and open the door. And Stephanie, I really thank you for sharing that story because I'm sure you're going to inspire other um, women of color at Claremont who may have gone, may be shy, may feel like, I don't want to just show up, but that you're sharing with us that if that is what you want to do, it's the way to do it. No one's going to, Right, Stephanie. No one's going to take us and walk us and hold our hands at this point. Um, I
1: mean, they, they might. They might. Um, my advisor, <laughs> um, my advisor at CGU, has been actually all the faculty that I've encountered at CGU. At, you know, being a second-year student right now, like, um, have been so supportive and helpful and. Um, you know, they, they take the time to like, hey, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing. Me personally, I'm a first generation graduate student. I'm the first person um, in my family for the last you know, several generations, since we don't have much information about history before that, um, to, to even get a bachelor's, much less a master's and now pursuing a PhD. Um, so like my advisor and my, the faculty I've, I've encountered here have been super helpful um but at the same time they can't know everything and when you're trying to go into something that's like kind of new as i am um you know they can they can only take you so far and and sometimes it's just a matter of like being scared and doing it anyway not to not to be super cliche but (laughs) um um but also this idea that um that like we belong here. And I struggle with that to this day. Like I have imposter syndrome, like nobody's business. The anxiety is quite cruel um, that I, you know, I bring it upon myself, but um, it's, it's about finding the community. I, I, in the last few years, I've really encountered, especially a lot of women, uh, women scholars that are like, you know what? Like, I think you're doing great. Um, You know, and they have no, they have no, reason to be kind to me or to you know they're not my advisors they're not my professors it's it's women that I'm coming across through you know networking at conferences or um or joining other organizations that are outside of cgu and and then you find like this community right um that kind of reminds you that like you deserve this you are working hard and no one can tell you I mean they can tell you, but you shouldn't listen that, that you don't belong here. Mm-hmm. Um and so it, it, it's it's empowering in that way. Um and, and it's a good reminder when you do have those rough imposter syndrome days to be like, you know what? Uh, maybe, you know, I, I just gotta do it and 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 that's what peer review is for, right? Like they'll tell you if you're if you're off on something. Um mm-hmm. but but uh, just just trying, just just taking a risk. And, and it's, a, it's a process and I still struggle with it myself, but I think it's important um, to, to say it out loud and to have other people hear it um, because they might need it just as much as I do.
0: Most definitely. Stephanie, I wanna thank you for taking the time this afternoon, um, for really reflecting on um, what you're doing here. And more importantly sharing really important insight and wisdom that's going to help a lot of other CGU students Um, because I remember being a first year and it was very overwhelming. So I would love to continue this conversation but without further ado from Studio B3 at Claremont Graduate University this is Latinx in the Inland Empire.